I'm Suzanne Lang bringing you a novel idea. It was said by Anais Nin, life is a process of becoming. Each of our guests today talk about their process of becoming, their journey through obstacles and trauma to arrive at a place of peace and perspective. In a minute, we'll visit with Lissa Bachner. Lissa is a blind equestrian. She is tough, feisty, emotional, and she did not let her inability to see more than just blurred blobs in front of her defeat her drive to compete. Her horse, Milo, was her equine partner in the competitive world of show jumping and her emotional partner that helped Lissa be herself beyond her blindness. Then we'll talk with Amy Turner, who in her memoir, On the Ledge, tells the story of nearly being killed when a truck ran her over in the crosswalk and how that incident led to her pieces of family history that involved her dad standing on the ledge of a hotel in Hartford, Connecticut, threatening to jump. At the age of three, Lissa Bachner was diagnosed with two immune disorders, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and uveitis, which attacked her eyes and eventually led to her blindness. However, Lissa always loved horses, and it was her relationship with Milo, a scrappy gelding from Germany, that transformed her life. Together, they rode around jumping courses where there are directional shifts and jumps have to be precisely executed, and together they were champions. Their story is told in Lissa's book, Milo's Eyes, How a Blind Equestrian and Her Seeing Eye Horse Rescued Each Other. This is not only a story of Lissa's grit, but it's a great horse story. Let's listen to our conversation. I spoke to her from her home in Florida. Lissa Bachner, Milo's Eyes, your memoir of your journey with this horse, Milo, and your journey in life. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my favorite subject to talk about. So I'm very lucky and grateful that I'm here. This is a compelling and inspirational story about your own journey in life and with vision loss. And it's just a really great horse story of uh, the relationship of you and your horse, Milo. And I think for those who like horse stories, it'll be great. But also for maybe people who don't understand what that kind of relationship is all about. So first, let's set up your situation of what you were afflicted with as a child and and which eventually led to the loss of one eye and your diminishing vision in your remaining eye. So talk about uh, your childhood and, and how that progressed. My favorite thing to say is you don't know what you don't know. I didn't realize that I didn't see like other people because I didn't have any basis of comparison. You're a kid. My vision was probably compromised from the moment I opened them, but they certainly got worse quickly. And so my mother really was the one who keyed in on it 
and after many, many, many doctors, it was discovered that I had a rare condition called uveitis. It's an immune disorder, and it's usually linked with another type of immune disorder. So I had uveitis um, and juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Both are rare and was in the 70s, and there wasn't a lot um, of research and not that many doctors who specialized in that condition. So that was the beginning of my journey. My left eye was always worse, and eventually, I'm very weak. And eventually the retina detached and they tried a couple surgeries to save it and um, it just wouldn't stick. You know, eyes are tricky because you can operate on them and you can make them better, but the side effects always come. And so scar tissue in an eye is a lot more, I don't want to say serious, but it can be a lot more dangerous than in any other body part. And so scar tissue over the years, inflammation brought on glaucoma. And glaucoma was actually what got my right eye at the end. Um, it was chronic glaucoma. It was to the point where it was painful and, and just destroying my eye and my vision. And you also grew up around horses. Yeah. How did horses affect you in your early life and, and how did you relate with them then and what did they provide you? Well, my mom owned a, just an enormous riding stable. She taught lessons out of it. There were school horses, there were boarders. And so, as, as you can see, the, the love for these animals was passed down to me through my mom. And I was so little when they took the lens out of my eyes. Most people know it as cataract surgery. And nowadays you can replace the lens, but back then you couldn't. And so I had just gigantic, thick, thick, thick Coke bottle glasses. And you can imagine I had no friends. I, I always thought, oh my gosh, my glasses, I guess the thicker the glasses, the fewer friends you had. So I had no friends and was made fun of. And, and at some point you just, you learn that you don't want to be around people and horses really filled that void for me. They were my friends. Uh, when you were uh, younger, did you compete? I did. There's classes for little tiny little children called lead line and short stirrup. And I went through all the ranks and all the divisions. So I did when I wasn't having surgery, which I was having surgery a lot back then. But when I wasn't or I wasn't recuperating, I was I was showing I was riding. And I have to say I was not that good. <laughs> so everyone wants to say, oh, you were so fantastic. And, and I, I wasn't. I didn't realize that you really, you, you need to understand that two, you know, you need two eyes to ride. I thought when you jump, as I do, you learn to see the distance in front of the jump where you should take off. And I couldn't see it. And I didn't realize it was because I had no depth perception. And it wasn't until I lost both eyes, I learned that if you, you can't see that distance, you can feel it. But you didn't learn that all on your own. No. Tell us how Milo, your horse, came into your life. I had graduated from college. I was a little lost. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that I, 
I loved horses, the, the one constant in my life. And so I moved back to Maryland and there was a very well-known trainer there named Bob Crandall. And I very nervously approached him and said, would you be willing to help me? And he said, sure. And, um, and he was about to go on a trip to Europe. We had just, the United States had really just started importing horses from Europe. Uh, we used to ride thoroughbreds here mostly, but the American thoroughbred has been so bred for light and speed. And so their bones are just too fragile to jump fences now. So we started importing from Europe. It was my first horse that I had imported and I knew nothing about anything to do with the importation. And so I was just excited that I was gonna get this horse. And Bob had warned me that he was a diamond in the rough. And I thought, well, how bad could it be? Well, it was bad. <laughs> it was so bad. He got off the van, he was flown in, spent time in quarantine, and then a big van came and picked him up. And we had a couple horses. There was another client who had a horse coming in and and they got there and I looked at Milo and I just, oh, skinny, filthy, uh, whip marks all over him and rubs where the spurs had been hitting him and rubbed him raw. It was awful. And I looked at this horse and I looked at Bob and I said, okay, this one, you can put him back on a trailer. I don't want it. Let's just switch. <laughs> they don't know those other people aren't here. Just give me the other one. I am not taking this thing. But he saw something in that horse that maybe he thought would be right for you. Did he have an intuition about that? Well, I think Bob saw talent in him. What I saw at Milo, I saw fight. I saw spirit. I saw something that when you look at it, it you would think, gosh, this thing is just broken and defeated. And I looked into his eyes and he looked back at me and I immediately felt a connection to him. And I thought, you know what, this horse, this horse hasn't given up yet and I'm not going to give up on him. Was he abused or just treated poorly in his former life in Europe? He was definitely treated poorly. They see horses differently. And I'm not saying that they don't love their horses there. But Milo came out of a sales barn, one of the biggest in Europe, and his mother had been an Olympian, his father was an Olympian, and it was very costly for the breeder to create Milo, and I think he was disappointing. In Europe, you have only jumpers, where you are jumping huge, huge, huge fences, and in the United States, we're lucky enough to have a, div a division for the hunters, where it's based on beauty. We jump, but we're not going over six foot fences. We jump four foot fences. And that was really where Milo shined. He was just that he just couldn't do what they wanted him to do. And so he was disappointed. I think he was treated badly, but not abused. When you first got Milo and Bob was mainly the one riding him, and that kind of surprised me at first that, that he was essentially riding Milo, and you were building a relationship with Milo. But tell us, for those of us who maybe aren't aware of how horse training and rider training goes, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. 
the equestrian sport, you have to have these horses move in a certain way and you have to have them jump in a certain form. And I just, like I said, I was not that good. I really didn't understand horses very well. I knew I loved them and I knew I loved to work with them, but that I was missing something in the communication that Milo really taught me eventually. But for me to be successful on Milo, I needed Bob to ride him and teach him. He had to teach Milo, this is the proper way you bend your body. This is the proper way you canter. And there are so many technicalities when you are riding a horse. There are, when you canter, it's called a lead. You're on a certain, going in a certain direction. You're on the right lead or the left lead. When you change directions without stopping the canter, you have to do a lead change and you have to teach the horse that, and that's balance and skill. And I didn't have it back then. So there was a lot that Milo had to learn before someone like myself could get on him and compete. How was it the first time that you did compete with Milo? (laughs) It was so bad. The first time I competed Milo, I was, it was the first time I shone without much vision, very, very little vision. I was awful. And I think it was more about getting around than it was about being perfect. There was no way I was going to be perfect. I just wanted to get around. And I did. It, it wasn't as well as I wanted to, but I did make it around. And, and everyone celebrated that except for a few people. But everyone that was close to me was very proud. And, and I was proud to an extent. I wished I had been better, but I did get there eventually. But it was a little rough. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Let's tell our our readers and listeners that in the meantime, after uh, acquiring Milo, you faced some really severe challenges. In fact, at one point, you completely lost your vision, and that happened very suddenly. And I think you were down in Florida when that happened. I was, yeah. So this really shook your world. So Talk a little bit about that real dark spot in in your life there. One of the issues was that I I had glaucoma. It was not getting any better no matter what we did. And I I saw a doctor who claimed that he would save me. He was going to be my hero. And but I had to do exactly what he said. And immediately I had no time to think about it. And he scared me. And I agreed to have a surgery and I should have been asleep for it. He uh, shot a laser into my eye and I wasn't numb. At that time, I'd had so much damage to my eye that there was all scar tissue and it really doesn't get numb anymore. So I felt everything and he made a mistake in the surgery. And so that did not help the situation. And then I lost my vision. And going blind swallows you whole. And I didn't even try and fight it. I didn't even try. I mean, you were swallowed whole by this darkness that surrounds you. And eventually it just um, overcame me. And I had lost the will to even fight it. 
And so I went to my mother and I thought, well, it's not fair of her to find me uh, uh, swinging from the fan or overdosed. I always think that. So I told her, this is, this is where I am right now. I don't want to live. Help me do something. I can't go online. I can't, I, I can't research, but you can. And she did. And, um, and she actually found a medication in Italy that was a long shot for sure, but it worked. I got a little bit of vision back. In the book, you describe how this drug you couldn't get in this country, but they sell it pretty much over the counter there. Yeah. How you got this medication and it managed to maybe inflate the pressure in your eye just enough to not be completely blind. But you, your vision was really not good to be jumping over, you know, fences and, and that sort of thing. So during this whole time, you were not maybe relying on, on Milo because it seems like you were in such a dark space. And so then how did you and Milo emerge into be not just competitive, but you two were winning all the time. And you had to develop some interesting strategies to navigate the course. But Milo was also a huge part of that. So can you even begin to tell us how you developed that synergy, that that relationship that allowed you to compete? At that time, Milo and I, we were already, I mean, just our bond was incredible, like nothing you've ever seen with an animal. I could stand in his stall and think about something. I'm going to get a treat uh, for him. I'm going to walk out of the stall. I'm going to pet him. And he would react to what I was about to do before I even did it. And so obviously there was something going on between us that was unusual, but beautiful. And so... After, I, like I said, we showed that first time and it was awful. And uh, it, was, it was absolutely heart-stoppingly scary for me. And, and I thought, this is not how it should be. I shouldn't be in the ring thinking, I just want to get out or I just want to live. And I thought, well, that's it. And I've done it. Check that box off. And I went to the concession stand with my mom after I competed and, um, and I was sitting at a table while she ordered and I overheard three young women who were in my class talking about me very unkindly. And uh, at first I was embarrassed and ashamed and they kept talking saying how terrible I was and the poor horse and something inside of me broke and I thought, you know what, make fun of me all you want. I'm going to figure this out and, and I'm going to come back and I'm, I'm going to beat every single one of you. And so I put my mind to the task. How was I going to do this? And I realized on the way to the barn one day, 
Bob drove me to the barn every day, every day except for Mondays, which is our day off typically in the horse world. And I could see certain things on the way to the barn. That's how I knew where we were. There was a building with a shiny, uh, something shiny. I, I know now that it was the roof. It was a metal roof and it would reflect. And I would think, okay, in about two seconds, we're going to take a left. And there were hundreds of these things along the route to the barn. And I thought, well, if I can figure out where I am within 30 miles, I can probably get around a ring of with jumps the same way. And that's what I did. And I just memorized every single step that I was going to have to take. And I would take Milo into the ring at six o'clock every morning before the show started. And we would walk around the course. Everyone tells me it's impossible, but I still swear to this that Milo would learn the courses too, because there were times when I wanted to turn and I was giving him the, the signals to turn and he ignored me. So you were essentially using the strategies that maybe many blind or visually impaired people do, but you were doing it on a course in an arena where you're not exactly traveling in straight lines all the time, or, uh, you know, it seems like for this type of jumping, maybe you do some crossover to the other side and you turn back and come this way. You had to know all that and commit it to memory. So I don't know, I just found it almost unfathomable. Maybe you found it kind of remarkable that you could do it too. I did. I did. I didn't, I really didn't think I was going to be able to. I thought this is, this is too much. And yet at the same time, I not only wanted it, I needed to do this. That is what drove me to go over and over and over again until it almost became second nature to think I'm going to see a red flower here and that has to be on my left side and on my right so it almost just set me up so perfectly and yes it's every time I have to go in and learn a new course it's daunting but I I have to do it and especially back then I needed it to survive I needed to have something that set me apart but in a a better light than oh there's that blind rider right yes you say that that you wanted to be a champion, not a blind champion. Yes. Some of your descriptions in the book, and as I said, for horse lovers, um, they'll love some of the descriptions in the book of, of you and Milo. And it seemed like you were talking about running a, a course, and you said you were flying. It felt like you were flying. And it just must be an incredible experience to have that trust and have that ability to move, to move through space with, with this huge animal. It's incredible. It's a partnership. And yet, really, the horse is doing most of the work. But it, it was freeing for me because I felt so trapped. And then all of a sudden, after I learned how to find, navigate the course, then I had to learn how to 
make every jump perfect. And as I said before, there's that perfect spot. And my editor, she referred to it as a sweet spot. And I thought, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's the sweet spot. And, um, and that's where you have, the horse has to push off and leave the ground, not unlike a moving sidewalk. When you're on a moving sidewalk, if you step across the threshold of the sidewalk too early or too late, it's gonna be an uncomfortable step. And that's sort of what riding is like in jumping. So Milo had a fantastic canter. And I learned that I could feel every part of his body moving underneath of me. And I think that's why I never realized that when they jump and you're in the air, it is, it's like you are flying. I just never focused on the feeling until I didn't have vision and I had to. Well, Lissa Bachner, thank you. Milo's Eyes is your book. It's a, an incredible story of your tenacity and a wonderful story about this incredible horse, Milo. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I just, as I always add, for people who not necessarily have disabilities, but who have things to overcome, uh, I know a lot of people will say, don't give up and keep fighting, which is also true. But I just want to remind people that you can't do anything without um, surrounding yourself with good people who will help you. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Even if it's just one person, ask for help. There's no shame in it. And if it gets you to achieve your goals, then it was worth it. Um, ask questions, ask for help. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lisa Bachner and Milo's Eyes. I'm Suzanne Lang, and this is A Novel Idea. When our next guest, Amy Turner, was four years old, her father attempted suicide by stepping onto a high ledge outside the window of his hotel room. He was eventually beckoned off the ledge, but not before the story was captured by the news media. That event shadows the family's life and fills Amy with lifelong insecurities. In her 50s, Amy Turner gets hit by a truck while crossing the street, and that sets in motion a process of identifying that early trauma and releasing herself from it. Her story is sometimes funny and mostly compassionate and engaging. Let's listen to our conversation. On the Ledge, your memoir, Amy Turner, welcome to talk to us today about your book. Thanks so much for having me. In the very first chapter of your book, you tell the story, one that you didn't fully learn until much later in your life, of your dad on a ledge of a hotel being then talked back off the ledge by a priest. Yes. In the second chapter, we are with you in your slow motion description of being hit by a truck. And your description of watching that oncoming truck 
almost seemed like you were waiting for for this to happen, um, for some sort of release, or you you maybe sensed that, I don't know. So these two episodes um, that start out the book converge as you work through the intergenerational trauma in your family, your own insecurities, and gaining a deeper understanding of yourself and, and what your family was dealing with. So let's start from there, because you bring us in to your situation in these very graphic ways. Thank you for that great description of the opening and, and the overview. I do set up the memoir first with the, the description of my father climbing out on a hotel ledge window and threatening to jump because that's where I end up, not literally on the ledge, but as close as I could get to it really in terms of researching his experience and coming fully to terms with it. But the accident in the following chapters you mentioned is really what leads me to it. You know, you're right in the accident. I think people know this from their own experience or movies. Things slow down in a way when you're facing danger. You know, people have been in near car accidents and everything slows down and you see it so clearly in the details. And in a way, that's what happened when the truck, I was crossing the street. I just, it was a sunny Saturday, nothing in particular, routine errand. And I was leaving the dry cleaners with a bag of dry cleaning and I step into the crosswalk there was no traffic and suddenly a pickup truck pulls out of a dead end street across from me and makes a turn and I'm standing right by the sign that says stop for pedestrians and I can see in the windshield but it's shaded but I assume he can see me staring right there and instead he accelerates and uh, knocks me over and drags me about 20 feet but it slowed down and, and actually in the writing of it, I had to speed it up to give, to give the reality of the moment because it's, you know, 15 seconds or something that this is happening, but it slowed down so much that I literally, as the truck is coming toward me, thought I'm, you know, I'm letting go and maybe this is the release. <laughs> maybe I am just going to be free of worry and anxiety and whatever has burdened me in my life, which was a really strange feeling when you're about to get hit by a truck. I mean, I would have assumed in the moment it would have been utter, utter fear. And you also had just picked up some dry cleaning and the bag, you know, dry cleaning bag is on your face. And even in, in the moment, it seems like you found a little bit of humor in that. But through the whole book, you, you seem to use humor in a way to maybe deflect even a, a little bit of what you're experiencing. Yes, absolutely. Humor has always been my preferred defense mechanism and also a way to just distract myself from something I don't want to pay attention to. And people at the time just couldn't believe this, but the truck had hit me, as I mentioned, it dragged me. And I wasn't really aware of that. I felt an arcing 
motion and a whooshing, but I was told later what that meant. So I was lying there and I could feel the heat from the engine blowing on me, but the bag of dry cleaning was on my head, on my face. And my first thought, my second thought was, oh my God, I just got hit by a truck, but I'm going to die suffocating on my dry cleaning. I, I had to crack a joke for me, myself to just somehow deal with the fact that I really thought I was going to suffocate because the plastic was in my mouth and I couldn't move my hand to get the plastic out. Fortunately, I don't know if it was the driver or passerby, I could feel a finger in my mouth and they pulled the plastic out and I could breathe. And you slowly recover from this accident, though it sounds like you were in somewhat of denial or not really wanting to accept that you did have some lasting physical trauma that that didn't necessarily resolve immediately. And you talk about headaches and that sort of thing. But it also then really sets you on a journey that you maybe thought you had already worked through in your life of your childhood and um, maybe some of the lingering effects of that. Tell us a little bit about that process, that unfolding process that was really stimulated by that accident. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. After the accident, I mean, even as we said, in the moment, I was using humor to just try to escape where I was and and the fact that I literally you know just escaped a, a brush with death and right after even the next day I was telling my sister about it and she was horrified and worried and I just kept saying it's not bad I'm not badly hurt I, I just could not acknowledge that I had experienced a trauma that I was hurt that I was in a weakened state frankly, that I was vulnerable. I mean, what's more vulnerable? <laughs> well, one of the more vulnerable things you can experience in life is facing a truck that mows you down, but I refuse to accept it. And one of the reasons that I couldn't accept that is because growing up in the family, I did with my father's you know, emotional state and, and potentially suicidal state, although that was kept secret from me, the idea of being vulnerable, of being weak or sick in any way, for me, really had life or death consequences. That's how it felt. It also felt akin to mental illness. And I was so afraid of, you know, my father's potential legacy to me that I did everything I could to present myself to, to the world and really to myself as strong, not vulnerable, not weak. And in the course of my recovery from the truck accident, I did have headaches and shoulder spasms and so forth. I ended up really facing the vulnerability that I did experience in front of the truck. But that led me to realize that what I was truly avoiding and terrified of was facing the vulnerability I, I felt as a child, as a four and a half year old, when my father suddenly disappeared. You know, I would learn later at six, not until 16, that that was when he was uh, hospitalized after his suicide. 
attempt, and I think maybe your listeners will relate to this in some way, either as parents or having been children, somehow children know. They may not have the vocabulary, they may not be able to explain it, but they know when something is terribly wrong. And I did grow up with that feeling that mistakes had life or death consequences. As you just said, your dad, uh, after this episode, he was away from home in an institution receiving treatment for about a year. And your mother, who was an alcoholic, and I don't know if she was sober at that time, but she had four children and three of them I think you used the term three under three or something like that. Really young kids, including you. And she was trying to hold that together while her husband is had this episode that was in the papers, in the newspapers. So then when he comes back home, you're all walking around on eggshells, it seems that that was almost what your mother would say, don't upset your dad. So your home life changed dramatically. And uh, as you say, young children perceive this. So not only was your dad gone, but your mother went through a transformation too. So let's talk about your mother a little bit. Yes, as I got older and became a mother myself, I my respect for what my mother did only grows. Um, my father had had issues. In fact, I sort of allude to the to an incident about a month before when, sort of strangely, he'd stabbed himself with a penknife. So it was some kind of attempt to harm himself physically, but. He was seeming much better and he was in analysis and everyone thought he was fine at the time uh, or well enough, you know, to be working. He did have a job and my mother was an active alcoholic at the time. Later, she described herself as a periodic, meaning she could go for a while without drinking. But once she started, there was no stopping until she hit a bottom and then she might be able to stop for a little while, but inevitably she would start up. So she was an active alcoholic at that time. Uh, my older sister is five years older than I am, but then there were three of us, myself, 13 months later, my brother Harold and 17 months later, Jim. So my mother did like to say with equal parts, exasperation and pride, she had three under three. But here she was getting a call in the middle of the morning that her husband is on a ledge and was being taken to the hospital. This was in New Haven. He was on a business trip. And there she was. The next time she saw him, she drove to the hospital to see him when he was being admitted and he was catatonic. He didn't recognize her. So she didn't know what her future held for her. But on some level, she knew she had to stop drinking if she wanted to save the family. So this was um, November 14th, 1957. And she stopped drinking a month later in mid-December. So she was able to stop drinking. But as she would readily admit, you know, the first couple of years of sobriety, especially the first year, are really tough. So she was hanging on by her fingernails. And my sister knew about the event, the incident with my father. We were too young at that time to know. But 
when he got back and even for her sake, the message in the family and the pressure on us was you know, not to get anybody upset. You know, she was desperate to try to keep the atmosphere calm so my father wouldn't get upset, possibly become suicidal again and possibly lead her to drink. So she's desperately holding on to her sobriety and trying to protect my father in some way. We didn't know what was going on, but we got the message that if you got somebody upset, made a mistake in that way, there could be very serious consequences, although I didn't know what they were at the time. But my mother um, was never one to really uh, express a lot of emotion or tolerate it because that's unpredictable. And who knew where that would end up, you know, in terms of upsetting someone and where would that lead us? So it took a long time before we could talk about these things. She seemed like a person who perhaps by necessity was straightforward. She addressed problems in the most practical way for her. And, um, I don't know, I'm not going to remember an episode you talk about, but she just didn't seem wishy-washy when it came to making certain decisions. And uh, she seemed like like a pretty tough woman. She really was. In a way, she, uh, she was very practical. I don't know if coming from Indianapolis, Indiana had something to do with it, maybe a Hoosier practicality. She had a very good sense of humor and was a born teacher. So one of her skills really was to be able to take complex situations and just break them down into simple steps. And she often could find you know, the easiest answer to something that was complicated. And this is just on kind of a silly level, but you might've been, it always makes me laugh. My later on, there, my mother was also extremely generous. She would help anyone and she was very active in AA and, and beloved as an AA old timer. But we had a uh, high school student staying with us. Her mother had moved away. So she was staying with us for a senior year. And my father just had certain quirks that would drive him crazy. And one of them was people who couldn't spell. And he was having a fit because this girl would take phone messages and then the terrible misspelling, which is ridiculous, but it would send my father into a tizzy. So instead of getting into it, my mother just said to the girl, I remember her name was Pam, and she said, Pam, just don't answer the phone. Yes, th that was one of the episodes that I was thinking of, that, that your mother just, okay, well, don't answer the phone. That takes care of that problem. You know, it took me, you know, going back to this situation and, you know, her, the way she handled us growing up and the, and the situation that she was confronting with my father, I really didn't appreciate. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit it because I feel pretty self-aware and so forth, had a lot of therapy, but she didn't really admit this until about a couple of months before she died, six months before she died, that she was just racked with anxiety. And so, I think so much of this was, you know, just trying to tamp down her own anxiety. So not talking about unpredictable emotions or letting people express themselves because who knew where it would end up. And she was so anxious that it was easier to just shut it all down, which I understand. 
You, at one point, rediscover a letter written to your mom from the priest who talked your dad off the ledge. And the heartfelt compassion that spoke to you all those years later really got your attention. Uh, Yes. I realized, I think, when I saw that letter for the first time, how much I had thought of my father's experience, my mother's experience, even maybe the priest's experience from my vantage point. You know, how did it affect me growing up? And I had never truly seen it from my mother's and definitely not from my father's. That was way too frightening, I realized, in retrospect. And in reading the priest's letter, which was actually, it was so beautifully written, so compassionate, I just was transported in that moment to what my mother must have felt when she opened that envelope and read this letter alone at home with four children and unsure of whether her husband would ever be back or if he would, what kind of situation he would be in. So it was really um, absolutely beautiful. And then in looking at that letter, I finally noticed the date And I had started to research this incident of my father's because I I had the family story was that it had been on the front page of the Daily News in in New York City, but I had no idea whether that was true, whether I was remembering it correctly. I'd been to the New York Public Library. I hadn't found it. And I began to think that, you know, maybe this is something that maybe my mother exaggerated. I really began to doubt the story. And then when I look at this letter, I realized, oh my gosh, I had the wrong month. And that led me back to the library where I did find the photographs and the coverage. And this is where you describe even your physical reactions to encountering these pictures of your father. And you describe seeing one picture of your father that was He was up on the ledge, but it was taken from below, and it was almost like he was looking directly into the camera. And how did you finally work through this information that you were receiving from all those years ago? Well, it definitely took a while, and I was surprised in a way Uh, when I went back to the library and I was doing the microfilm and I found the first photograph that I'd ever seen of him. It was on the, it was on the front page of the daily news, which is a major tabloid at the time and still is in New York city. I just panicked. I, I was overcome with anxiety and I was literally felt like my father was in the room. I felt that I needed more information and the only person who could tell me was my father. And somehow I had a panic attack actually is what I think happened. I just started to hyperventilate. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I just had the sense that my father might be in the room. This again, felt like it was, you know, 10 minutes. It was probably three minutes. And I was surprised afterwards. I had such a visceral visceral, physical reaction to it. I put that away and I thought, you know, I've seen it. 
answered the question, I'm not looking at this anymore. But it nagged at me and I continued to do more research, but I still could not sit with the pictures. Every time I even glimpsed at them, I really, I felt like I had so much anxiety. I felt like I was the one on the ledge. And I didn't understand it. I think this is just a photograph. It's 1957. Everybody lived and survived. Why is this happening? And it really took me a while. And I think it was in the course of a lot of the treatments I had with my acupuncturist after the accident, you know, that I was ongoing treatment that helped me kind of process that anxiety and release that original trauma. And in the end, I realized that, you know, my, myself, my concept of myself, my ambitions for myself, that it was formed on that ledge at that moment, that everything went back to that point. Because in a way I felt metaphorically, but also almost literally that I'd been on that ledge, but it took me a while to actually come to terms with that which I did, uh, felt somewhat depressed because I felt sort of back in the family situation, but ultimately it was so healing and I felt so released because I felt I'd really gone back to the beginning, confronted that extreme vulnerability, faced it and moved on knowing that I could survive that kind of vulnerability as I had the truck. I'm speaking with Amy Turner, her memoir is On the Ledge. There's uh, lots of warmth and love in this book also amidst the confusion and your own discovery. And I wonder what you would tell others, because how do we ever really know our parents or their trauma, that uh, early life trauma that maybe they've been struggling with? And how do we escape the hold that their pain and sorrow may unknowingly have on us? Um, can you give us any insight into that? For me, I think it, it really was the therapy I had, and then also having the great good fortune of really stumbling into a situation with an acupuncturist who happened to be studying body-oriented techniques for releasing trauma. I had just gone to her because my shoulder was killing me and I end up kind of on a journey with her. So I know that was really key for me in terms of having this kind of breakthrough. I was able to have the wherewithal somehow was supported enough to really go back and feel that vulnerability and feel my father's vulnerability as he must have felt on that ledge. I, I think for me, especially in the course of writing the memoir, and my father had a long life after this incident, and I'm happy to say he struggled with depression, but never had a repeat of the kind of event that I describe in my book. He went on to uh, become a, a political activist, and he was a, a warm and you know loving man. And I think as we get older, if we become parents, even if we don't, we 
just get a greater perspective and see our parents for the full complex people they are, not just what have they done to us and how did they impact us, but what is the full panoply of, of their challenges. And honestly, in the end, this is, sounds simplistic, I'm sure, but I just did, I know the best they could. They really tried and and I'm really grateful for that because in the end, that's really all we can do is try to do the best we can with what they have. And they did that. And I have great gratitude for it. Before we say goodbye, I want to also ask you about the writing of the book and how you worked through the uh, storytelling and, and the sequencing of the chapters. Thanks for asking that. I, I love to talk about that. I had always wanted to be a writer, but as another example of how enmeshed I was with my father's situation, he was a blocked writer and I found myself very blocked. And I'd have moments where I could write, but I always hit some kind of wall. And so I really, I gave up on that. I enjoyed the writing I did as a lawyer and a teacher, but creatively, I just somehow always got to a certain point and couldn't get beyond. But after the accident, also I hadn't mentioned before, but about a month after my accident, my brother, who's 13 months younger, who had been doing better in the last three years than he had in decades, dies suddenly and unexpectedly. So I was really thrown thrown by that. I'd had two unbelievably random, difficult events happen within you know six weeks. So eventually I found myself writing a thank you note to our high school English teacher who'd attended his memorial. And this channel just opened up. Somehow connections, uh, observations, reflections, connections, just honestly gushed out of me. And I found myself soon, you know, beyond the bounds of a thank you note, I sent off the thank you note, and I just kept writing with no concept of what I was writing. It was just finally coming out. And, you know, eventually, I realized that it was taking some kind of shape, but I'd never studied memoir and um, began to take some classes and think about what I had here. And I'm so grateful that I came upon a wonderful writing teacher, Hope Edelman, who's a wonderful author uh, of Motherless Daughters and the After Grief. And I worked with her for a while. I'll just say briefly that as a writer, you have to obviously figure out structure and in memoir, you know, how are you going to deal with time, the past and the present? And I read people who read my memoir and workshops, they said, oh, it's wonderful, except I'm I'm as dizzy as you were after the accident because you jump from the present to the past to the far past. And so I had to figure out how was it that I could tell the present, the recovery from my accident, but at the same time deal with what I was also recovering from, which was my upbringing, my impact, my father's uh, incident on the ledge. And I had seen it kind of like sheet music, you know, the staves, the different instruments, the line of, of musical notes for bars for each one. Because I always feel like as I'm experiencing the present, I've got the past with me. It's of a piece. 
so to try to not go on too long, Hope had a wonderful idea for me. She said, Amy, why don't you do, there's the A story, the accident, which is the accident and the recovery moving forward. And the B story, I was born in Bronxville, so it fit the backstory. And so I did that. I alternated between the A and the B lines, but uh, it was a lot of work initially. And any writers who are listening, it was daunting, but I'm so glad I did it. And um, if you're faced with this, don't be discouraged. I literally went through 150 pages paragraph by paragraph, is this A story, is it B story, put them on colored index cards, put them on the wall, and just rearrange them. And that's how I ended up with the structure of alternating chapters. And of course, it went through revision and chapters got rearranged yet again. But when I hit that structure, then it fell into place, because that was as close as I could get to describing the present with the past right there. Well, Amy, so good to talk to you today about your book on the ledge. And uh, I appreciate the conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation and the interesting questions. Thanks so much for having me. Amy Turner and her memoir on the ledge. Earlier, we heard from Lissa Bachner with her book, Milo's Eyes. The music on today's show is from Peter Jacobson, playing as Hella Cello from the album Dream Talk. We have production assistance from Will Penny and Mark Prell. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. Listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast at krcb.org. Follow the radio program or podcast links. I thank you for listening. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea.